The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Curbsiders. I am Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my good friend, Dr. Paul Williams. And in just a second, he's gonna tell you what we do on this show. But tonight, this is a Tales from the Curbside. This is one of our rapid fire recaps where we go through some of our favorite pearls from recent episodes. And that happened to include this time, some of the conferences that we were at this spring, as well as episodes on bariatric surgery and osteoporosis. So, Paul, tell the audience, you know, what what do we normally do on this show? Uh, and who are we? What's the meaning of life? Or any other advice, <laughs> any other quick advice you wanted to give the audience? No, uh, you know, buy low, sell high. Um, we we are the internal medicine podcast. We, we typically use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you alluded to, this is a little bit of a different episode. This is one of our spectacular Tales from the Curbside recap. So this encompasses not only us revisiting some expert interviews, but also both the SGIM and ACB conferences we attended where we were just bullished with information. Like it was just, I mean, like three straight days of really high value Zoom calls, which is a phrase I, not that I'd ever used before. <laughs> Uh, and and the fun the fun part of that, which I really I really recommend the audience go back if they didn't get a chance to listen to the S Gym or the ACP shows, that's where we had eight people, ten people, something like that at both conferences, and we would meet up at the end of the day, talk about our favorite pearls from the day, cobble together a show, and then record that. Which is uh, it's a really fun thing to do, and we get you learn so much by doing that. That those episodes are just really full, and the show notes are filled with a ton of great links. So definitely check that out. The first episode we're going to talk about tonight is number two seventy, which is the titled S Gym Highlight Reel, and this was featuring the Curbsiders team with show notes and graphic by Sarah Phoebe Roberts. So to start us off, Paul, actually, I'm going to throw to you. Uh, you had some pearls about caring for the Muslim patient. Yeah, this was um, a talk that was presented really nicely by the amazing uh, aforementioned Sarah Phoebe Roberts. And as someone who has a fair amount of Muslim patients uh, and having Ramadan just having passed, I thought that it was worthwhile talking about counseling patients about Ramadan and sort of coming up with a plan. So that was actually part of the presentation and sort of the main thrust of it. And so one of the things that I thought about specifically that comes up often is the management of diabetes during Ramadan, which is a holy month in Islam during which observant Muslims will fast from sunrise to sunset. And it often comes up in terms of what do you do with patients' diabetes medications? Do you stop insulin? What if they're on a sulfonylurea still? What about metformin? What if the patients are relatively ill? And it turns out that there is really great guidance that exists out there. So in addition to this talk, this talk also referenced some really spectacular evidence-based recommendations put together by the International Diabetes Federation in collaboration with the Diabetes and Ramadan International Alliance. And we'll make sure to relink to these in the show notes. And these are really in-depth, thoughtful, readable recommendations from start to finish about what to do with the patient's insulin, how to do counseling, what to do with medications, also management of other non-diabetes medications like antihypertensives, that kinds of things, what kind of counseling you should do for patients who are sick or, you know, who are not required to fast. And just, it's this broad and yet somehow deep collection of recommendations for how to talk to your patients about uh, their medical care during Ramadan, which I found hugely helpful. Yes, because it, it, especially... 
The first I ever heard of this, Paul, was I was actually at the ACE conference back in, I think it was like 2017, and they were there was a, a great talk about this and how to adjust the insulin because a lot of patients eating nothing all day, and then they have some meals after sundown that they're eating, and sometimes those are high sugar meals. So it, it was very, it's just very interesting and trying to adjust it definitely will be case by case and you'll need to work with the patient um, because I think it's going to be unique each time. But there are, as you said, some great guidelines. Right. I think just recognizing that you need to have it or probably should be having a conversation and then also being aware of the resources is a really great start that I don't think I had um, until several years ago. Paul, also at SGM was a great discussion about LGBTQ health. And it is Pride Month, Paul. And as we're recording this is Pride Month, I know it's, this is going to be released towards the end of the month, but I, I wanted to include some LGBTQ pearls. These were from a great producer, Dr. Rebecca Raymond Coker. Becca, your name is t- your full name is tough to say. And uh, they told us about that asking patients, what name do you want to use? What do you want to be called? What pronouns do you use? Be sure to use the correct name and pronouns. And in the medical record now, you can update the pronouns and and put in a preferred name. Though, Paul, I don't know about you, I feel like it should be a little bit more prominent and a little bit more user-friendly to do that, um, because what we're talking about here is misgendering people. Right. Yeah, I know. And Becca made a lot of terrific points here. They talked about how misgendering can be a form of microaggression, which, of, of course, is a bad thing. And then they also mentioned that just becoming comfortable with using pronouns, asking about them, having a standardized approach is sort of the key to do it consistently and doing it consistently well. And I, I think there are also some recommendations about trauma-informed care that you want to talk about. Yes, Paul, because I know you love the physical exam. I wanted to, to remind the audience of this physical exam, Pearl, which is you should have a trauma-informed approach whenever you're doing a physical exam for anybody, but especially for your LGBTQ patients um, who maybe more have been more likely to experience some sort of trauma. And so you always want to explain what you're doing. And one of the examples that Becca gave was that if someone is wearing a chest binder, which is a binder that sometimes patients will wear if they have a desire for the appearance of a flatter chest, you might say something like, I think for us to do a safe exam, we should probably listen to the lungs without the binder on. And how do you feel about that? Uh, Becca also linked in our show notes to a website that said that talks about how to safely use binders, because I guess there are unsafe ways to use binders out there. And we will have links in the show notes to a site that talks about how to safely apply a chest binder for those who are interested. So now, Paul, I know that you're a huge fan of gabapentin. Uh, obviously it has, <laughs> you're just baiting me with pleiotro- pleiotropic effects and mm-hmm. there's many, many conditions where it's FDA approved and we should be using it for, do you agree with everything I just said? I, I agree that it is FDA approved. <laughs> I think that is a fair and solid point that you have made. And I, you know, I, I, we, we give gabapentin a hard time. I think it's just, it was originally a seizure medication that we're now just trying to find other uses for that it, in my humble and limited experience it doesn't succeed as well for right right so i know it's approved for like diabetic neuropathy and i believe trigeminal neuralgia as well but it gets thrown at a lot of things back pain and and all these other things where we have some good evidence now to say that it 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 doesn't work but uh, this was a recent paper by Verit or Vere and came out in 2020 it was a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at gabapentin in the perioperative period, because 
A lot of the times gabapentin is used as like an opioid sparing medication, but actually um, they didn't find it to be helpful for acute pain, uh, subacute pain, or chronic pain for patients who had undergone surgery. And then also another talk was talking about gabapentin for chronic pelvic pain. Paul, this was the GAP2 study in the Lancet in 2020. I figured you'd like that name. And sure, uh, that's not the like. It also was not helpful for chronic pelvic pain. The side effects that were noted were dizziness, drowsiness, and visual disturbances. My plead, my plea to the audience is, audience, uh, this medication. I know it's tempting to use it, and we've talked about some uses on the show. Like uh, one of our guests talked about using it for alcohol withdrawal or for you know maintenance of alcohol um, as a potential maintenance therapy for alcohol, but we really have to think about this. This is now a drug that there's some evidence that it's being used as a drug of abuse. And certainly there are side effects for patients, regardless of whether or not they're trying to mis- misuse the medication. So I think we're, we're way overusing it. Paul, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's, that's my feeling. Right. Well, not to be too much up on it, um, but it's, but yes, I think that's right. I think it's often viewed as a benign medication where even if it doesn't help, it's not going to hurt. But it turns out it really does have pretty significant side effects. Um, they, they can range from annoying to potentially dangerous. So right. I, I think used with caution and used for clearly indicated purposes. And I've definitely found several patients who are, uh, you know, they're on a high dose of gabapentin and then they come in with acute renal failure and now they're suddenly on a toxic dose of gabapentin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's just another reason that there's a downside to it. Well, I think you had mentioned, you know, and I think that where we got here was actually talking about using gabapentin for pelvic pain, uh, which was actually part, I think, of the, the broader women's health talk that I actually wanted to, to mention. So if you if our listeners have not had the privilege of going to a conference like SGIM, part of what they do are these updates in broad topics, so updates in general internal medicine or updates in women's health. And the updates in women's health this year, I mean, it's always great, but this year was just jam-packed. Like, it was just top to bottom. I think we could spend an hour just talking about that alone. And they sort of subgrouped the updates into to categories like uh, cardiovascular health and bone health. So I, I want to talk about a couple of those, if, if that's okay with you, Matt. Sure, sure. So in terms of the cardiovascular health, a couple of topics I found fascinating is they, they mentioned uh, a relatively recent uh, analysis of women who have self-reported migraine with aura. And it turns out that those patients who self-reported migraine with aura appeared to have a higher risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular events than those patients who did not. And it, it was fairly significant. If I remember correctly, it was on par with having a systolic blood pressure greater than 160 millimeters of mercury. So a, a, a not nothing risk. Wow. Um, and in terms of you know what to do about that, like there, there are not specific recommendations to change management. But I, I think the way I viewed this was if you're on the fence about making some sort of intervention, whether it be... Um, starting an antihypertensive or starting a statin therapy for someone who's kind of borderline, if there is a condition of self-reported migraine with aura, that might tip me more towards being more aggressive towards risk reduction. And along those lines, we, we talked about some of the vasomotor symptoms of menopause um, and hot flashes, specifically severe hot flashes seem to confer a higher cardiovascular risk as well. So again, this is something else where in and of itself, it's not something where you'd start a statin on these patients, but in terms of a global assessment of cardiovascular risk, it might just tip you one direction or another as to whether or not you might implement therapy. So I thought that was sort of a fascinating couple of potential risk factors that I'd not thought commonly about. And I, we're going to be talking about osteoporosis a little later in this episode, but maybe you can tease it. What about atypical femoral fractures, Paul? I'm really worried about those. 
and it's a worry. Um, th- thank you for that almost seamless segue. Uh, but the, the, <laughs> it's you know it's been in the news. There's the concern that bisphosphonates might confer a risk of atypical femoral fractures, and it turns out that they do. And and it's 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 a real increased risk. But the converse of this is that the overall benefit of preventing fractures is so much higher and so much more significant that you shouldn't let that slightly higher risk of atypical femoral fractures stop you from prescribing. The, the risk itself is not sufficient to change your habits. And then also the benefits are so substantial that if you, if you weigh the risk versus benefit, the benefits far outweigh the risk. So that should not stop you from prescribing bisphosphonates. If you look at the ACE 2020 guidelines uh, on osteoporosis, which I, I actually just looked at a couple hours ago, Paul, they have supplement one figure two has A B figures A, B, and C. And there are these graphs that show your risk of fracture or your risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw, your risk of fracture, or your risk of atypical femoral fracture, and then it shows your risk of fracture with or without treatment. And it, it really just like visually gives you a great uh, sense of this. So we can certainly point to those in the in the show notes here because I think they're really, really useful and, and a great way to counsel patients about this as well. The last thing I wanted to say before we leave this uh, great SGM conference, they had the update in hospital medicine. And I think for me, the by far, the one of the coolest pearls was, Paul, we always, we always tell our, our residents, you know, a, a MRSA nasal swab can be used to help rule out MRSA pneumonia. And you can, you can peel off the anti-MRSA coverage, you know, if you get a negative na- nasal swab. But actually, it turns out that they looked at, and this was in clinical infectious diseases in 2020, they looked at other infections as well. And actually the negative predictive value, so if you get a MRSA swab within seven days, the negative predictive value was on average 96.5%, and it ranged from 93 to 99%, the negative predictive value. And this is in order here, urinary tract infections, it was like 99% negative predictive value intra-abdominal infections was something like 98, and then bloodstream infections and wound infections. Wound infections were the 93% negative predictive value. So I'm taking this very cautiously that if I have a low suspicion for a MRSA infection, the patient's doing better, I think you might be able to pull off the anti-MRSA coverage sooner than you would have otherwise, because if it's not, if it's, uh, you know, if you get the MRSA swab back before the, the urine culture, the blood culture, or whatever else you're culturing, then, and you don't have a high suspicion for MRSA, this is telling us that there's a pretty good chance um, they don't have it. Yeah, the numbers are remarkable, though I will say I'm such a coward. I might still wait until the blood culture speciates before I pull off the anti-MRSA yeah. coverage. Like, I really, really impressive. I love science and I believe it, but also right. I'm a giant wuss, so sure. I, <laughs> I might just wait for the if culture. If someone's like back crashing anyway. and they have like, you know, uh, and they have a clear like bloodstream infection, it's like four or four bottles growing gram positives, maybe, maybe don't pull <laughs> off the MRSA coverage. Yep. But, you know, audience, I'm sure you'll be able to use this information and hopefully for antibiotic stewardship to, to narrow antibiotics a bit sooner than you would have otherwise. Matt, fans of the show may know that I... My natural coloration is actually translucent because I fear the outdoors. I avoid the sun. I am maybe the least active human being that you've ever met. <laughs> and in contrast to you, like you, you've talked about this, you've built a tree house. I didn't get to plan it yet, but I understand that you've actually put together a zip line. Like you're out there, you're using tools, you're building things, you're being active. With all of this, how has this impacted your fashion choices? 
Uh, very good question, Paul. And and we do you you do have to come back over the house on a day it's not raining so we can enjoy the treehouse and the zip line uh, with with the kids. But uh, this so my fashion choices. Uh, our next sponsor is Kalo, and I love I love Kalo. The they make silicon wedding bands among other things. But I, as you may or may not know, Paul. Uh, I have been afraid ever since medical school when one of my good friends told me about this condition called wedding band avulsion. I actually tried <laughs> this was before I was married and when I was when I when I did get engaged I was trying to convince my partner that I didn't want to wear a wedding band because I didn't want the top half of my finger to be ripped off if I was ever like <laughs> climbing a ladder and the metal band got caught in a hook or something. And these sure. these Kalo bands are made for an active lifestyle and they actually, you know, if if you're ever in a situation where you could be hanging by your wedding band, which could rip off your finger, uh, these will actually break under that tension. Um, but my my wife and I love them because they come in all different colors. They come in all different styles. My wife's been wearing them in the summer months because she says her rings don't fit as well in the summer months when her hands tend to be warmer. And also, uh, she's at the at the beach in the sand. She's using sunblock, and uh, you know that that can mess with the wedding band. So she just likes to have these. And uh, we've really loved uh, the products that uh, Kalo sent us a whole bunch of different styles, and it's been great. So I would highly recommend this to the audience. Sure. Well, and, and as you mentioned, Kalo are the makers of the original silicone ring. They have mastered comfort, functionality, and style. You can even customize your Kalo ring with a meaningful Fraser date right on the ring. So head to Kalo.com slash curb to get 20% off your purchase today. That's Kalo.com. Uh, Q-A-L-O dot com slash curb and get the 20% off discount that will automatically be applied at checkout. That's Kalo, Q-A-L-O dot com slash curb. Now, we went to ACP as well, Paul. We we did two episodes, episodes number 272 and 273. We, we called these the ACP Highlight Reel Part 1 and 2. And uh, we had the whole Curbsiders team. There was, I think there was like 10 of us there. Um, and the show notes uh, were done by, one was done by myself, one was done by Beth Garbatelli. There was so, there was so much at this conference. It was just was so unreal. Much. I mean, we had trouble picking the pearls and then the shows we did like, I think we did three hours worth of show around this conference because there yep. was, there was just so much. So where to start? Paul, do you want to start with some uh, GI and hepatology pearls? Yeah, I'd love to. I Just because I would like to once again shout out Dr. William Sanchez, who did just a fantastic job with the updates in GI and hepatology. So a couple of things that came up. Um, he mentioned, so oftentimes, uh, maybe oftentimes is overstating it, but sometimes you'll do abdominal imaging for one reason or another, and this will uncover an introductal papillary mucinous neoplasm. My and the first favorite. time you see this, you're like, oh no, what, 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 what am I to do with this? And it turns out that they're actually is malignant potential for these if they if they're growing over time and so they they are something that warrants tracking with a huge caveat because the caveat is that if you're going to be tracking and they progress to the point where you worry they might actually have malignant potential the surgical management of these is a whipple procedure which is a gigantic surgery even for someone who's otherwise healthy and the fact of the matter is is that these ipmns these introductal papillary mucinous neoplasms tend to happen in older patients who may have a lot of comorbidity and may not have a whole lot of functional reserve and so these are patients who may not necessarily do well with this this huge surgery so he made the, the really salient point that there's no need to surveil these patients if they are not candidates for surgical intervention so if they're not going to 
survival Whipple procedure, you don't have to be doing the <laughs> yearly MRIs or, or whatever other you know observational uh, interventions that you're doing because you know the the definitive management is not going to be offered to those patients anyway. This, this just reminds me of a a, a patient that it it uh, from earlier on in my career who was kicking around one of the hospitals I was at who, you know, just see he. This was 88 or 90 years old, something like that, and was not in good shape. And it just kept having like someone put on the discharge summary. Don't forget to follow up this IPMN. <laughs> IPMN. Oh, no. oh boy. And uh, you know, I, I just when 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 I was in this session, that that's what I was thinking about was just that patient. And I'm just like, why were we why were we wasting our time with that? We should have just told him, don't worry about this. This is not going to kill you. Uh, you're you're sick from other things right now, and. Uh, it could have could have saved some saved some time there. So I, I love that pearl, Paul. That's it. That's a great one. Yeah, it's it's a nice reminder that there is a forest that has trees in it. So if I'm taking medicines, Paul, I don't need to worry about my liver because medicine is great for the liver. Correct? No, just the converse. They will almost certainly kill you. <laughs> um, so that the fact of the matter is is that lots of medications, prescription and over the counter, can cause drug induced liver injury. And this is something I didn't fully appreciate. Like, I knew that you could get liver injury from, from drugs. Obviously, we all see it all the time in our own practice. But it turns out that these tend to have a kind of fingerprint, a toxicologic fingerprint, which I thought was a neat way to look at it. So there's certain patterns of injury that might point you in the right direction. So the injury can be have a cholestatic pattern. It can have a hepatocellular pattern. It can appear as micro or macro steatosis. Maybe it manifests as venoocclusive disease or not uncommonly drug-induced autoimmune hepatitis. So there's no specific test, but if you sort of, if you take a good history and you see uh, a specific pattern, it might point you in one direction versus another. In terms of diagnostic testing, uh, one of the things that are helpful is if they have a positive ANA and an anti-smooth muscle antibody, this suggests a drug-induced autoimmune hepatitis, classically seen with things like nitrofurantoin or uh, methyl dopa, which I know, Matt, you prescribe all the sure. time. Sure. Uh, my first or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, who doesn't keep that in their toolkit? Um, but it's, it, and then it's one of the points that was raised is that there is this great resource that I think we have referenced before. It's this website, livertox.nih.gov that can help you tease that out. It's a fantastic resource when you're sort of looking up, um, potential drug-induced liver injuries. Def yes, definitely bookmark that site. It is, it is a fantastic site. Paul, we can't not talk about uh, Dr. Clyde Yancey, who gave this update on cardiology at ACP. And he, the 2021 update to the heart failure guidelines, and we're talking about systolic heart failure here, they actually included SGLT2 inhibitors, regardless of whether or not the patient has diabetes, because these medications are just performing so well. Paul, do they have some sort of pleiotropic effect? I mean, God, you almost hate to say it, but apparently. <laughs> Uh, eventually we'll figure it out like that like in the same way that we did with statins there's gonna be a specific thing they do that is helpful but for right now we it seems like they're just extraordinarily helpful um, right in general for patients with heart failure we talked about this on the the nef madness episode i think was two years ago we did an sglt2 inhibitor episode where we were talking about it and it's it's not just like getting rid of the sugar it, it's not just the blood pressure lowering effect. I think it's it's a lot of different things that are going on. But these medications are are really just like I, I think the darling of of everybody right now. Uh, they're 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 fantastic, and uh, they are now in the heart failure guidelines. Whether or not patients have diabetes, this is systolic heart failure. There's an emperor preserved trial going on right now to see how effective they're going to be for hef pef. So pre with preserved ejection fraction, but stay tuned for that. I'm sure we'll just endlessly talk about SGLT2 inhibitors on this show going forward. 
I will I will never miss a chance to say this. If you've never actually heard uh, Dr. Yancey speak, first of all, listen to our episode because he has just the best voice for speaking. Like he is just a delight to listen to on a pure sonic level. But uh, with the episode that we had with him, he made this point n- now years ago that he thought that SGLT2 inhibitors, you know, at the time were viewed as diabetes medications that seem to have positive cardiovascular effects. And he's like, and I think over time, you're actually going to see them become cardiovascular medications that just happen to help with diabetes. Right. And then there was this long pregnant pause where we, all of our jaws like just hit the ground because we were just, our minds are blown. And I, I think every study that has come out that looking at these things seem to back him up on that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I find that they're helpful because a lot of my patients with diabetes they have like albuminuria, CKD, their blood pressure's uncontrolled, and, and you're hitting all these things with uh, with them. Um, they can be prescribed. Uh, one of the one of the points he made in his session, they can be prescribed along with loop diuretics and seem to seem to complement them nicely. So they really have a lot of uses, and I've been using them more and more in my practice as well. And there are oral medications that are often taken just once daily. Right. Which is just another, as opposed to other agents that are, you know, injectable, which makes people a little bit nervous. Um, no PR meds that I can think about. Along the lines of cardiovascular medicine, the calcium channel blocker, Paul, I seem to get the patient that gets lower extremity edema when they're on a calcium channel blocker. Do you do you notice that side effect for your patients? Yeah, constantly. I mean, they're they're great antihypertensives, and and I think a lot of people like them as first line therapy because they are relatively kidney neutral. Um, but yeah, especially with these summer months approaching, I, it's more and more any patients who are on them seem to have uh, some dose-dependent related lower extremity edema. Yeah. And I think it's like up to 25% of patients on calcium channel blockers can can get lower extremity edema. I guess it depends on the source that you read. We talked about on the show, and I believe it was uh, Dr. Avital Glasser, the great Dr. Avital Glasser, who brought this up, that Tony Brew had a tutorial talking about this phenomenon. And and Paul, you mentioned the point that ACE inhibitors are, are actually the way to help mitigate the edema patients get with calcium channel blockers because the way that calcium channel blockers are dilating like the proximal arteries or arterioles, it causes this like increased pressure in the capillaries and uh, you get edema. But when you put someone on an ACE inhibitor that actually dilates both the pre and the post capillary and uh, lowers the pressure, you get less edema, which you got to read Tony's tutorial about this, but just such cool physiology, um, which I had no idea about, Paul. Right. And I think this came out um, out of actually a talk about deep prescribing, right, Matt? So Because yeah. I think initially what happens is patients will be start on calcium channel blockers, they'll end up with lower extremity edema. And as a result, anytime you see edema, you think, well, I see diuresis that stuff out of there. So oftentimes these patients will be placed on loop diuretics to then treat the side effects caused by the calcium channel blocker. And unfortunately, mechanistically, that doesn't necessarily work. And so I think that was, if I remember right, Matt, refresh me, this was a point about actually taking off medications that patients may not need. And this right. was part of that talk, right? Yeah, it was Dr. Eric Widera, uh, our friend from the Jerry Powell podcast and from the Jerry Siders podcast that, that, that he did with us. And this was a point of deprescribing, which is as somebody who wanted to be a geriatrician, this is one of my favorite things in the world to do is deprescribe, uh, especially um, if, you know, if someone has this side effect and it's so bothersome to them and, and maybe you try the ACE inhibitor thing and it, if they still need blood pressure control. And if that doesn't work, I mean, you should not add a loop diuretic um, because then you're just like adding on medication. So deprescribing and switching to a different class of agent might be the answer here. and. I just, I love everything about that point and, and the physiology that we learned because of it. Now, Paul, 
we had another episode that I believe you produced this one. This was number 275 with Dr. Vivian Sanchez. This was bariatric surgery for the internist. I believe the graphics were done by Edison Zhang, who is a fantastic medical student that works with us and does really great infographics and cover art for the show. So Paul, where, where should we start with this? It's yeah, there God, there is so much here. And yeah, and, and Eddie does a tremendous job with the graphics. I, I can't highlight that enough. But I, I think why don't we start with the benefits, then we can sort of talk about what to do if someone decides to pursue it. Um uh, but in terms of bariatric surgery, it's it's interesting. I don't think I fully appreciated how under referred patients were for it. So when when you talk about bariatric or, or what Dr. Sanchez calls metabolic surgery, in addition to causing significant amounts of weight loss, um, more so than most of the, the medical therapies that we actually have, it actually seems to decrease patient mortality and improves quality of life. And then there are these almost immediate metabolic changes, like including improvements in diabetes and blood pressure, so much so that they've actually lowered the threshold to refer for bariatric surgery if someone has uncontrolled diabetes, because it seems to help with that metabolic aspect so, so much. So I just don't think I, I recognized how beneficial it was. Yeah. Um, and yet, despite that, it doesn't seem to be offered nearly as much as it could be. I think what is less than 1% of patients are actually who qualify or referred. Is that the number I remember? Yeah. And Dr. Sanchez also mentioned that the mortality rate from the surgery is also low, less than 1%. So patients should be given the chance to at least hear about this. We, we asked her a little bit about what, if you send someone to a bariatric surgery center, what's going to be included there? And she said, usually they will meet with not only the surgeon, but they have behavioral health folks there, uh, psychologists, and they have dietitians there who are really integral to the process and will work with the patient ahead of time because a lot of the times they, they really want the patient to be educated, to know what they're, what they're signing up for, and that, that center will help the patient make sure that they're going through this checklist of things they need to do um, before the operation, and then they will also follow them after the operation. Paul, and you mentioned that the weight loss was better than with just medical therapy or just lifestyle changes alone. But can you quantify that a little bit? Like how much weight are people losing? Yeah, Dr. Sanchez cited some remarkable numbers. So it, it varies a little bit by procedure, but the excess weight loss can range from 60 to 70%. And the way to think about this is if someone has 100 pounds of weight uh, over and above their ideal body weight, that's 60 to 70 pounds that the patients can expect to lose through bariatric surgery, which is just a remarkable number. You know, we've, we've talked about this before, but in terms of medical therapies, I think even the, the more recent semaglutide studies where you can expect to see maybe 15 to 20% weight loss, like those are huge numbers that are deeply exciting. To see numbers like 60 to 70% is, is just remarkable. Right. And when we talked in the obesity hypoventilation episode, the, the guidelines for obesity hypoventilation actually recommend a 25 to 30% weight loss, which as our guest on that one pointed out, you it's really hard to achieve that without yeah. a, a surgical intervention. And so the the twenty five to thirty percent was total body weight, not excess weight. Um, so that different numbers we're talking about there. But so this is something that should be considered. And as you mentioned, if they have uncontrolled diabetes, even a BMI over thirty with uncontrolled diabetes, despite medical therapy, this this would be an option. But classically, we think BMI over thirty five with comorbidities or a BMI over forty. So what I liked about this episode was just talking, trying to figure out like what labs am I responsible for as the primary care? Because I see some patients, I tend to get the patients, Paul, I'm not sure if this happens to you too, but do you, do you get any of the patients that had the surgery and then seem to just like 
not be seeing the surgeon anymore and it's 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 a little bit too soon for, in my perspective is that happening to you too it happens every so often or you know even so I, i'll have patients with a remote history of some kind of bypass surgery i'm never quite sure what kind of monitoring or testing i should be doing after the fact i think that's probably what that, that, that's probably what you're saying it better than i am so yes the patient that had a remote surgery sometime in the past 5 or 10 years and then they've or they've moved into the area so they're no longer in contact with their surgeon and then i'm just like what am i supposed to check so what dr sanchez told us is that if someone's had a gastric sleeve surgery look out for anemia so you know you can check their iron levels you can check b12 uh certainly check for anemia and um in the in the early period like the first year after the surgery for all comers you're going to be really checking things like uh like well you know, Paul, I don't know that it's as helpful to go through the entire list. I think maybe to to mention that there are tables 11 through 14 in the uh, ACE guidelines, um, which came out in 2019, which I'll link to. They have really in-depth lists of based on what type of surgery they had, which labs you should check. And then they also have the tables in there talking about like what sort of levels of vitamin repletion you should be giving patients. And it's really too much to to mention on the show, and I don't I don't really think anyone would would retain it. But I, I don't think uh, what I will say maybe is helpful to the audience is you don't need to check like zinc, copper, selenium quarterly, and and some of the some of the vitamins that we don't check as much like vitamin E, vitamin A, vitamin K. You don't have to check those all the time, but you just have to sort of those will be checked early on and refer to these tables. Look to see like what you what you might want to check in your patients. And if they've had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass or a biliopancreatic diversion, you might be more aggressive about checking these things because they're more likely to have micronutrient deficiencies uh, with those surgeries specifically. And Paul, you know, that these aren't the only complications patients get. So what if what if a patient comes into my office right after a surgery, like first first couple weeks or months, and they have really severe abdominal pain? I could send them home with some simethicone, right? Yeah, no, great idea. Or maybe uh, topical lidocaine. I feel like it works well for virtually <laughs> <Gabapentin>. everything. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, it's the the point being obviously is that if someone comes in postoperatively, especially after uh, bypass surgery, reporting abdominal pain, they need to be evaluated urgently, and it should be a surgical evaluation because there there are certain specific complications that you need to be mindful of. Interestingly, these patients have a higher risk for symptomatic cholelithiasis, which I thought was interesting, and they can also have marginal ulceration or a dilated remnant. So abdominal pain in the immediate post-op period for gastric bypass is, is a big deal and should be checked out by, by someone who has comfort with that. And then the gastric sleeve procedure has its own set of potential complications, which I found interesting. So if you get the gastric sleeve, you are at increased risk for reflux symptoms, for, for gastric reflux. And you can even develop a higher risk for Barrett's esophagus, even in the absence of reflux symptoms, so much so that Dr. Sanchez actually recommends doing an upper endoscopy after three years just to evaluate for this. And I, I'm not sure this is in specific guidelines. And I think she mentioned this is her own personal practice, but the risk, the risk is there and is significant. You know, Paul, speaking of GERD and, you know, that makes me think of PPIs, which makes me think those are, those are great for the bones. Is that, is that right? Has that been verified? 
because oh, because this Paul, is, this is yes, my like expert transition jazz. to uh, <laughs> number two seventy seven. Bone up on osteoporosis, and oh, of course, audience, I'm joking. Don't you know? Don't give your patients PPIs thinking it's good for the bones. Uh, I'm not sure if it is. Uh, I don't know that anyone knows definitively, but uh, you know, don't give them a PPI if they don't really need it. But this was uh, episode number two seventy seven. Our expert was Dr. Carolyn Crandall. She is an internist at UCLA, and this was produced and also with graphics by Isabel Valdez. And I wanted to start off this one, Paul, just defining some terms here. So osteopenia, we're changing the name. It's now low bone mass or low bone density, and that is defined as a, on a DEXA scan, a T-score of minus one to minus 2.5. Of course, osteoporosis, if the T-score is less than minus 2.5. But what I really think is more helpful to identify, Paul, is the fragility fracture, which do you, like, how do you think about that definition when you're seeing somebody who's had a fall and a fracture? I think maybe I'm just too, like, you know, OCD about this sort of thing. But do, do you have that issue as well? Yeah, no, it was never something that was sort of well-defined or well-thought about. Like, I knew about the general topic of fragility fractures kind of broadly, and specifically the spine and the hip I thought about. But the the other sites, I would either have to look up or just, yeah, or just, or, or, or just worry about them kind of vaguely. But I think that you and Dr. Crandall really sort of got down at the granular level and talked about specific definitions of what actually constitutes a fragility fracture. Well, the, the genesis for this was that over the course of my career, I've seen a couple patients where they were almost arguing with me uh, about uh, whether or not they had a fragility <laughs> fracture and, you know, the, and, or, or they had had arguments with other people. And w there was one patient in the recent past who told me that she had an ankle fracture, that she had fallen and fractured her ankle. And I said, did they consider that for you osteoporosis? Cause she was a new patient to me. And she said, no, they didn't consider that osteoporosis. It was just an ankle fracture. And that was one of the specific questions I asked Dr. Crandall. So she said that fragility fractures typically, um, and this is from the ACE guidelines, there's spine, hip, the proximal humerus, the pelvis, and, and, and possibly the distal forearm or the distal forearm would be included in that. But the ankles, she said, are actually controversial, which is just like, <laughs> ankles are controversial, Paul. That's, that's, yeah, we'll medicine. make that a shirt. And then, uh. But specifically, the ACE guidelines say things like fingers and toes are are not are not considered in that. But anybody that's falling, you know, and fracture anyone falls, you know, from standing or less than that height and has a fracture, you really should think about is this osteoporosis and think about putting them on treatment. So, Paul, I mentioned the T scores. Remind us about the DEXA. We we talked all about it with Dr. Crandall. What what are we doing with DEXAs these days? We get them every year, right? Yep, yep, quarterly if you can, along with your selenium <laughs> levels. Um, no, it's the Dr. Crandall. We, I, you know, for me, this is one of the most helpful parts about this. Is talked about the intervals for for using the DEXA and how to interpret the reports and some nuances that I, I don't think I was quite as aware of. But one of the things she mentioned is that you don't you don't get to have two different diagnoses, so you don't get to have, you know, if there's osteoporosis at one site and low bone density elsewhere, you have a diagnosis of osteoporosis. So you go with whatever the lowest density is, and that's your diagnosis. And then she talked about the idea that doing this serial bone density monitoring is not recommended. So disregard our hilarious <laughs> jokes earlier on. This is not something that you should be doing on a yearly basis. So you, And you don't measure bone density while the patients are on the standard course of therapy. And to define a standard course of therapy, that's either five years of an oral bisphosphonate, three years of an IV bisphosphonate, or three years of denosumab. 
So the idea being is that you get your DEXA scan, you make the diagnosis, you treat the patient, and then after they've completed their course of therapy, you check another DEXA to see if they merit a holiday or not. And so the reason that you're not doing these serial DEXA scans is because there's actual precision errors with it that are inherent in the test itself. So you can expect some variation between 3 to 6% at the hip or 2 to 4% at the spine just based on precision error of the test itself. And so if you do it on a yearly level, you might actually be capturing this variation as opposed to actual changes in bone density. So it's just not as helpful in short-term intervals. So the, the larger interval is actually more useful. And then- And I can, I can jump around machines all I want, right? <laughs> Thank you for that seamless prompt. Yeah, no, the, and the idea being is that <laughs> to mitigate some of that variability, you want to make sure that you're actually using the same machine for each time that you're checking the patient's uh, density. And the report itself should comment specifically on if there was a significant change from prior. So it's so really do go through the entire report um, and read what the, the kindly radiologists have written for you, because all those things actually have uh, importance and significance in terms of how you'll treat and whether or not you would restart therapy or not. And that whether or not to restart therapy is a little bit dicey, too. I, I think especially, Matt, we had talked a little bit about denosinab and what to do about that and how the drug holidays work about that. But there's there's some confusion there. Do you remember what, how that conversation went? Sure. So denosumab, this, and this was an article that, that came out sometime in the past year, just talking about this precipitous drop in bone density that patients can get if they, if they miss a dose of denosumab, which is, is typically given like twice a year. And she mentioned that during COVID, and I, I think that was what prompted this article, was that during COVID, if patients were missing their denosumab, what people really should have been doing is putting them on like an oral bisphosphonate just to make sure that they don't have that loss of bone density. The catch there is you got to make sure that someone doesn't have advanced CKD because bisphosphonates really aren't used for an EGFR under 30. So you're kind of stuck. If somebody has advanced CKD on their, and they're on denosumab, you, you keep them on the medicine. And we asked her, I, I mean, we don't really know what, what what's the like, when do you stop them, Paul? Like, you, you just keep them on them until they're too sick to make it to an appointment and uh, going <laughs> to die from something else? I, I don't know. It's like, Is it a destination therapy is kind of the way that I'm thinking about it now. Right. But if if they are on denosumab and they do have enough renal function, you probably should put them on a bisphosphonate whenever you're thinking of stopping the denosumab because they're going to lose the gains they've made very quickly. We talked about the treatments and and she said, as as Paul was talking about after the DEXA, you know, Paul, I, I've had some patients that take bisphosphonates for 10 years and it sounds like you're you're just kind of in this cycle of you give it five years, you, you check DEXA and depending on what you see, you may decide to continue it or you may decide to give them a holiday and then you would restart if they fracture or if they start to drop off again as you're monitoring. But it really gets gray after that initial cycle of of yep. medication. So, sorry audience, but you know, that's that's the best answers that that is out there right now. <laughs> now, Paul, the workup it when when you find somebody that has osteoporosis or that has a fragility fracture and now we're going to do a little bit of a lab workup. We talked about that. How do you feel about the 24-hour urine calcium collection? Well, yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, Matt, because that is actually part of my uh, routine workup with any new patient is the first thing I think <laughs> even before I introduce myself, I will say. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, my name is Paul Williams. Very nice to meet you. And by the way, I'm just going to need you to pee in this bin for 24 <laughs> hours and, and then get back to me. 
<laughs> no, it's but I, yeah, but you mentioned that up as part of the, the broader workup for osteoporosis, and I think actually, if I'm not mistaken, um, the AACE guidelines actually recommend doing this 24-hour urine test, uh, and I think you even looked into it. Is to it's the best commercially available method for evaluating the adequacy of calcium intake and absorption, if not the most convenient. Though I don't know if it's part of everyone's right practical practice. Um, but what what yeah. kind of stuff do you typically do that is not necessarily making patients pee in a bucket for 24 hours? Right. I think the tests that you should think about ordering for everybody are like a comprehensive metabolic panel, a TSH, just because we're we're pretty good at treating thyroid. We we know how to interpret that test as, inter- as internist. You would check a 25-OH vitamin D because before you start someone on therapy, you're going to want to make sure they have at least a vitamin D level of 20. Um, the ACE guidelines would tell you a greater than 30 before you start. And then uh, you would think about secondary causes of osteoporosis or or fracture, like multiple myeloma. Uh, does the patient have celiac disease? Do they have features of that? Um, does the patient have a Cushingoid appearance? And if any of those are the case, then you might go down working them up for those things. But you don't have to do that for all your patients. Um, and whether or not you get a PTH, uh, I think we were sort of plus minus on that, but I do believe that's recommended <laughs> as well, Paul. I think you were kind of plus minus on that, uh, just because I remember you actually saying that every time you order a PTH, <laughs> you're praying to God that it comes back normal, which I just which made me laugh a lot. I don't want extra work, Paul. I just want to be I just no. want to be able to say I did, I checked it, and then it was all good. I don't want to have to start Listen, thinking about that. Yeah. So th- so that was the episode. I mean, we we did talk also on the episode. If people want to go back, uh, we talked about a little bit about calcium and vitamin D. Uh, I guess to to briefly summarize, her point was that you know if patients are getting adequate levels from the diet, then um, that's great. More is not necessarily better when it comes to calcium and vitamin D. And for asymptomatic adults, don't go checking vitamin D on all your asymptomatic adult patients. Please don't. Please don't do that. It's just not. It's not recommended. And Paul, any last words for the audience before we leave? Uh, before we leave this, is what I imagine has been just a wonderful recap episode for them. They are they're getting their <laughs> space learning, and they're just really enjoying all this playful banter between us and all my <laughs> all my really clever transitions. No, I I think we did great, and I also think this was a, a marathon episode, but a fun one. But I think they have all the words, so I, I have nothing to add. All right. So with that, let's get to the outro. Well, how about these words then? This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback so you can subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our fantastic theme music that you are doubtless hearing behind our sweet, sweet voices. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.